Hello, welcome to Alpha Bunga Bunga. My name is Alex Hokuli. I'm in Sao Paulo, Brazil. Alpha Bunga Bunga is myself and George Hoare, who's in London, and Philip Cunliffe, who's in Canterbury. So as listeners will know, this is the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. But today we're going to zoom back a little bit before history supposedly ended, back to the Cold War and its killing fields. Uh, and to do that, we're joined by Vincent Bevins, who we're very happy to have on. Um, because I actually used to read his reporting back when he was a Brazil correspondent for the LA Times. Uh, and now he he's back in Sao Paulo after a period in Indonesia, and he's just visiting. I think he's uh, probably a building about 200 meters away, but obviously we're in different places because of uh, quarantine. Anyway, Vincent, how's it going? And uh, how long have you been back in, in Sao Paulo for? It's, it's going good. I got here a month ago, and the plan wasn't to be here for much longer, but I may be stuck. Um, I was going to go to Chile, but I can't anymore. So as it is now, I'm just going day to day and trying to figure it out. So one month so far, and who knows? Yeah, no, that's right. I was wondering whether, because you had mentioned that you'd be heading off to Chile, but uh, that looks like it might be might be difficult to, to realize. And I don't know what's going to happen with their elections there and everything. Yeah, they've um, they suspended them. So they I couldn't fly there even if I wanted to. And the, the referendum on the new constitution is off for now, um, as is the Bolivian election, which I was maybe going to cover as well. And that's much more worrying because the current leader of that country has no legitimacy. But um, yeah. yeah, so I'm, I'm going to stay in, in Praça da Repubblica here in downtown Sao Paulo until I figure out what happens next. Excellent. And we're actually, I should say that we're recording this on the 31st of March, which is a pretty inauspicious date in Brazilian politics because uh, it was the eve of and, the, and the, the initiation of the 1964 coup, which we're going to be talking a lot more about over the course of this episode. But I, I should highlight that, uh, lest you think this is ancient history in Brazil, Brazil's vice president, uh, General Mourão, tweeted today, praising the armed forces intervention to stop, and I'm quoting, uh, the disorder, subversion and corruption that threatened institutions and frightened the public uh, back in uh, March of 1964. He went on to praise the quote unquote, well, I'm, I'm adding ironic quotes here, the election of General Castelo Branco, Brazil's first military dictator uh, in the mid 60s, for starting the reforms that developed Brazil. So again, lest you think this is ancient history, this is stuff, this sort of anti-communist uh, hysteria is actually quite alive in, in Brazil today. Uh, and that's the subject of Vincent's book. And I just want to say a little bit before I actually get Vincent to talk about the book himself. So the book is titled The Jakarta Method, Washington's Anti-Communist Crusade and the Mass Murder Program that Shaped Our World. Um, that It'll be out in May uh, under Public Affairs, which is an imprint of Hachette. Uh, the subtitle there should give you a good idea of what the book is about. Uh, but I should probably highlight, actually, that it isn't narrowly about Indonesia or about Jakarta. Uh, the book, I, I felt it was a bit of like a journey, really. Uh, it really skillfully interweaves the pers various personal biographies, both of uh, influential figures as well as uh, the victims of massacres, uh, and tracing their trajectories often across the world. Uh, I, I thought it was also the book was quite affecting at some important moments. Um, I mean, obviously, it's a book about mass murder, so it's it, it will tend to do that. But um, it obviously the, the elements of personal biography we bring home the effects that these anti-communist crusades had. It also kind of leaves you, at least left me, with the desire to exact a sort of bloody humanity redeeming revenge on the perpetrators of it. Um, and hopefully it does uh, to you too, if you if you uh, find time to read it, listener, uh, which I strongly encourage you to do. 
So I guess, first of all, we should do the um, usual interview questions about someone who's just written a book, which is what motivated you uh, to write it initially? Well, um, it, although it might sort of seem that I've searched the world for the best way to make the United States look bad, it was sort of very much not like that. The first book I tried to write was about global fashion weeks, and no one wanted to buy that. Um, and, it, and then I got sent to Southeast Asia um, to write for the Washington Post in 2017. So I moved from Brazil to Jakarta, and I was covering this 11-country region, and I came across this story, which I kind of knew about, which was the, the massacre of the Indonesian Communist Party. I had seen the film The Act of Killing, which a lot of people have seen, but I had no idea really what it was. And when I got, a, when I got further acquainted with just how big and bad it was and how deeply implicated um, the United States government was and um, the extent to which it still shaped Indonesian society and the way that that affected me most um, directly was that there was a conference just simply trying to discuss what happened and I went there and then right after I left there was a sort of violent mob and my roommate was trapped in there all night um, and they were threatening to kill them just for discussing this event. So I, I came to the conclusion that this was a, a really big deal, um, a much bigger event for the Cold War than the Vietnam War was. Um, one of the worst things that the U.S. government ever participated in, and it was the kind of thing that nobody knew about. And I took this, you know, to some people in the U.S. that could make it happen and everyone agreed. Um, but it, it, it was very much an accident. I wasn't looking for this horrible um, story to tell. It, it just jumped out at me when I got to Indonesia and looked around. Yeah, and I think one thing I, w I should ask uh, as well about the book, it, as I mentioned uh, in the introduction there, it interweaves all these personal biographies and that although I think the book would function as a story, as a history, without those, those add so much color um, and poignancy to the story that it makes the book even that much more worthwhile. Uh, how did you find your interviewees? How did you go about that? And was that always uh, the intention to feature that kind of personal color? I'm really gratified that you that you said that because I, I wasn't sure that was going to work. Um, I really had no idea if you could really take characters from, um, you know, a story that covers three or four decades from 12 different countries um, and sort of make it work narratively. Um, and like you said, I could have easily just said, you know, make a case, um, present the facts and say, well, this is what happened. This is how bad it was. This is um, our proof as to the, you know, the role of the United States. And that would have taken me probably 20 percent of the time that this took because I did really have to go around. Yeah very carefully earning the trust of the victim communities. And this was, a, you know, this is no small task, especially in Indonesia, where it's illegal to admit that you were involved in the anti-imperial struggle, even though 25 to 40 percent of the country was involved. If, if you say that now, you're shunned and um, can go to jail. Um, and Sorry, just to interrupt, Vincent, um, yeah. could you just clarify what... Um in anti-imperial struggle refers to in the context of that law. Right, exactly. So when the Suharto dictatorship took over um, in 1966, in the wake of this mass murder program, they passed a law which prohibited the defense of Marxism. And this can be interpreted very widely to include, you know, wearing a T-shirt with Ho Chi Minh on it. And, you know, there have been some backpackers from Vietnam who have gotten thrown in jail for this. But certainly saying that the military did what they did um, 
to tell the true story of their involvement in this mass killing is considered illegal. And as I recount in the book, about 25% of the country in Indonesia in 1965 was in the Communist Party or one of its affiliated organizations. So anybody that is above a certain age, there's a one in four chance that they will not be able to tell you the truth about their lives. So it took a lot of work to gain the trust of these uh, victim organizations. And I and I did so in, in the city of Solo, especially. I started with a, uh, a Jesuit priest in um, Yogyakarta who introduced me. And after months and months of getting an Indonesian um, of getting my Indonesian skills up to par to do the interviews one-on-one, -on -one, they started to trust me and believe that this was something that they should do. But if I had not done this, uh, sorry, if I, I, I could have written the story in, in a very straight way without this, and I think it sort of would have worked, but I was hoping to try to get the reader to understand what it really felt like to be a leftist in the third world in the 50s or 60s, or at least to spend enough time with one to realize what these people thought they were fighting for and what it was that they were really killed for. And I think if you sort of draw a picture with lots of huge numbers on it and say, we killed this many people, that's very shocking. But if you can get to know what these Indonesian leftists were doing and believe that the, that they were building, um, it becomes a lot more um affecting and a lot more horrible yeah. to find out that that is precisely what they were killed for. Absolutely. And it makes it more evocative in the sense that they, you, it can't just be dismissed as the experience of leftists, but it shows what an all-embracing and universal experience it was and how much it dislocated personal trajectories as well as national trajectories. Uh, and th that question of, of national trajectories is actually something we're going to come on to a little bit later on because it's worth thinking through how... Cold War violent anti-communism actually shaped different countries' trajectories, which we now take for granted. Uh, they've been kind of naturalized as you know as, as we move further away from that history. But uh, there were there were times in which that sense of a national trajectory, where we as a group of people might be heading, uh, was really in play. And that was especially in play right after the Second World War, at the moment where these anti-colonial movements really start having successes, gaining their independence. So that's where I want to move to next. I think it might be worth for listener who might not be familiar with Indonesia's history to kind of do a little potted history of Indonesia's uh, first two decades at the end of the Second World War to try to understand uh, how it gained its independence and also its moves to lead the Third World, which were very important and often forgotten nowadays. So maybe, Vincent, if you could tell us a little bit about that, like Indonesia's no, trajectory absolutely. after the Second World War. Absolutely. And I, I find that to a very large extent, a shocking extent for a country that, that is this populous and important, people don't really know anything about Indonesia. And I think this is sort of a byproduct of the fact that what, what the Western powers did there was so horrible that it's best just not to talk about. But this is a hugely important country now, and it was especially important in the 40s and 50s. So Indonesia, as it exists now, is the former Dutch colonies in Asia. Um, and that is what brought them together. Um, basically until the Japanese invasion in 1941. And when the Japanese invaded in 1941, they found that there were already nascent uh, anti-colonial movements that had gotten back quite far in the 20th century. So the first communist party in Asia is the Indonesian Communist Party. They were founded before the Chinese Communist Party. In many, in many ways, um, the Chinese were instructed by the Comintern to try to copy 
the Indonesian Communist Party because the Indonesian Communist Party had always been a party that believed in working with the bourgeoisie in sort of a mass uh, united front against imperialism. And this was the case at almost every single point in the Indonesian Communist Party. Uh, it turned out in China that that didn't work and they took an entirely different path and this, you know, and those two uh, strands would intersect again later. But um, when the Japanese got there, there was Sukarno, who was the leader of a anti-colonial movement, which was explicitly nationalist, Marxist, and Islamic. Um, this was a considered a natural, organic, and, and uh, obvious thing for everybody to get behind. And everybody basically did when the Japanese were kicked out in 1945. So the Dutch tried to reconquer the country, as many um, first world imperial powers did in Asia. So from 1945 to 1949, the Dutch um, reinvaded um, with some success. But by 1949, Sukarno was the leader of a anti-imperial left-leaning uh, new country that spanned over 10,000 islands and that was trying to sort of forge a nation out of these anti-imperial values. So Indonesia in its bones, even to this day, has anti-imperialism as a national ideology. Even Suharto couldn't really get around that. He mm. he had to pretend that he, he the, the, Suharto being the dictator that took over in 1946. Sukarno, as, as the sort of national, the, the, as the prophet of Indonesian identity, really built anti-imperialism into the, the deep DNA of, of the country. And by 1955, Sukarno put on the conference at Bandung, which was the first movement um, to bring the country's, the world's colored peoples, this is the, you know, the term that they use at the time, together, all of the countries of Asia and Africa to build a new global anti-imperialist alliance. And this was a huge moment for Sukarno as leader. Um, it leaders from South Asia, all over Africa, and this definitely got the attention of the United States. Um, and, 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 this, and just after that began a series of uh, US attempts to stop him and just stop the rise of the left in Indonesia. And one thing that your book really brought home to me, which I had probably not thought about enough, was the degree to which in those early days, in the late 40s and early 50s, the return of colonialism was a genuine going concern. I mean, we look back on it now and say, well, obviously, it was a sort of fait accompli after uh, the Second World War and all the devastation it wrought, both on the defeated Axis powers as well as the victorious allies that, of course, all those empires were going to come to an end. But it, it wasn't so clear, and it certainly to the dominated peoples in the Third World, it wasn't at all obvious that, that the game was over. And in fact, you know, the Dutch do try to come back and, and take over some bits here and there, and there's various um, imperialist machinations, you know, or really colonialist machinations that go on. Uh, so I think what, what makes that relevant and how it connects to anti-communism, at least from what I've understood from, from your book, is that... That was a broad concern amongst a mass of people. Uh, so, and, and, and that got reinterpreted by, especially by the United States, as a, a potentially communist feeling, right? The, or, right? Or inclinations to communism. And so it was something that was a very natural and understandable um, concern about the return of colonialism uh, became reinterpreted by the United States as support for communism. Absolutely. And, and other historians have made this, I'm not a historian, historians have made this point very convincingly, but under Truman, there was this idea that countries could be 
to some extent neutral as long as they kept the communists in line. Um, as soon as Eisenhower takes over, new, being neutral or in any way anti-colonial is seen as automatically just as bad as communism. And there is this maddening lack of understanding on the part of, of American officials because they tend to interpret the skepticism that the peoples of the third world have towards them as anti-Western or pro-communist bias when these people are often leaders that have been in prison for most of their adult lives that are watching the United States assist Vietnam just um, just a few miles away. They're watching the United States overthrow um, governments in Guatemala and Iran, and people are trying to kill them all the time. They think it might be the CIA. They think it won't. But anytime these countries act as if they're not sure if they can uh, trust the Western white powers that have dominated their countries for hundreds and hundreds of years, the United States would turn around and treat that as, well, that's proof that they're communist and this leader can never be worked with and he's out of his mind and he's a mad dog we have to put down. That uh, that last phrase actually being used to describe Lumumba right before they tried to kill him. So just, um, I guess, to, to kind of bring it to the the main event almost of, of, of the book, but I mean, just maybe paint us a picture of, of what Indonesia was like in 1965 to kind of bring, I guess, some of these these points about the the third world and kind of anti-colonialism um, to life a bit. Because, I mean, I didn't realize this, that at that point it was home to the largest communist party outside the Soviet Union and China. Um, yeah. And I think you actually, and we'll probably come on to this later, why it is that Indonesia remains a huge gap in our collective general knowledge, because I think that's to kind of get ahead of ourselves. And I think the reason you give for that is really fascinating. But yeah, so what, what was what was the situation in, in 65? I think I think it's good to start in, in 55, because in 55 you had a parliamentary democracy uh, under Sukarno with the Communist Party, again, back in their historical role of supporting the bourgeoisie. They were a a very orthodox party in that sense. They believed you had to build capitalism before you could ever try to get to socialism. Um, and they were, according to the CIA's own analysis, according to the ambassador, the US ambassador's analysis, just the best organized and the least corrupt party in the country. And this very much worried uh, officials in the United States as it did, as did the Bandung Conference, which was an explicitly anti-imperialist alliance of all the countries, all the world's um, formerly colonized people. So in 1955, they start funding the Muslim party to try to stop the rise of the Communist Party, which is gaining more and more votes in parliamentary elections. This does not work. The Communist Party continues to gain more and more votes, specifically through its very effective outreach programs um, with peasants, with cultural activities, with educational activities. They're just kind of doing what a party's supposed to do. And this is not my words. This is the words of the U.S. government. So in 58, what you have is that the CIA tries to replicate a the success that they had in Guatemala in 53 and Iran in 54. And they try very explicitly and obviously to break up the country and overthrow Sukarno. And they start launching planes from Singapore to bomb the country. Um, and there's some incredible moments that I came across where the ambassador to the United States doesn't know that the CIA is doing this, He's and but the, the Indonesian government certainly does, but the Indonesian government, because of their extreme, the extreme imbalance of power between the two countries, had to sort of pretend that they didn't know either, out of politeness, not really accuse the United States of doing this. 
But that all fell apart when a pilot um, working for the CIA crashed onto the island of Ambon with, for reasons we don't really understand, his papers still on him. So they caught this guy, they caught an American who had a few days earlier killed a bunch of civilians. He was obviously CIA. And this was the end. I mean, the, the, the CIA was, the CIA's operation was a failure, as they often are. Um, <laughs> Which is, sorry, and, just to interrupt, because like, we're going to come back to this, but it's just amazing right. how big fuck-ups the CIA, and to be fair, most spy agencies, but maybe especially the CIA, repeatedly are. We'll come back to this. Sorry, carry on. Yeah, no, and I want to, I mean, we so, so an hour later, but the CIA, the CIA only turned to the third world in the first place. And this is something I didn't know before I started the research. From 19, from the late 40s to 1953, they were trying really hard to crack into Eastern Europe. And they, they, this, these attempts consisted mostly of sending people to their death over and over and over because they didn't really know what they're doing. But the thing about being the secret, the clandestine service of the hegemon is you don't really get in trouble if you mess up. So they kept throwing people into Eastern Europe and finally they realized, oh, we can't crack the Soviets. They actually like are communists and they actually have secret police to like figure out what we're doing. So let's try the third world. And Guatemala was a big success. Iran was a big success. And in 1958 in Indonesia, it was not a big success. So what you had was the military, the Indonesian military that was fighting the CIA, gained a lot of power in 1958 um, because of a state of emergency that was declared to, to fight the civil war. And afterwards, there was no more real elections. Um, after that, there was the suspension of Indonesian democracy. Partially, it was Sukarno's fault. It was mostly the armed forces' fault. And the, the entity in Indonesia which least wanted to cancel elections was the Indonesian Communist Party because they kept growing and growing and growing. But they had no guns. They had no uh, way to really protest this kind of a move. So they stuck to Sukarno as they always had. Um, and continued to grow quite impressively from 1958 to 1965. And, and as, as American commentators recognize themselves, the fact that the CIA tried to blow up the country and dropped bombs on churches and, and markets helped the left because it turned out that they were right all along. They were the ones saying all throughout the 50s, you can't trust the Americans, um, they're imperialist. And so by 1965, you have about 25% of the country in the party. Um, the, sorry, by 1965, you have about you have three million active members in the party. So it's the largest party outside the Soviet Union in China. And 25 percent of the country is somehow affiliated with the party, whether in an educational or peasant or cultural group. And they are clearly the most the dominant political force. Sukarno has sort of moved from the center left to being quite close to them rhetorically. And um, the military, the the force that um, has always been the most uh, anti-communist, does not like this one bit. Um, and the, what's very important is that has been hidden to many people by 1965, but was certainly clear in the United States and to the military, is that after this 1958 CIA invasion failed, the U.S. shifted tactics. And I think these tactics are very relevant not only for Indonesia, but for Brazil and so much of the rest of the world. Instead of doing this thing where you hire whoever you can to blow up stuff and then overthrow the country, but everybody knows that it was you, which was the, the model of the 1950s. After this failure in Indonesia in the late 50s, they started bringing over lots and lots and lots of Indonesians to study at um, 
the Leavenworth Military Academy in Kansas. And so they built huge, uh, you know, they sort of established ideological hegemony within the Indonesian military by paying all these guys to come over to the United States, take classes, giving them lots of money, telling them that they wanted Indonesia to be like America. And so by 1965, you had a uh, basically a system of dual power with Sukarno um, really ruling, but uh, ideologically supported by the communists. And then the army running much of the rest of the country and materially and ideologically supported by the United States. Uh, I just wanted to ask about um, the role of Islam, um, just to kind of flesh it out a bit, because um, you mentioned how um, Sukarno kind of built his regime around combining um, uh, kind of ordinary ordinary Muslim feeling in Indonesia with communism, anti-imperialism, um, but also the um, and how the CIA or the U.S. government tried to manufacture a kind of Islamic um, opposition to the um, domestic strength of the Communist Party in Indonesia. And so when you have the, when it's the army and the U.S., what place does Islam have um, uh, politically within Indonesia, within Indonesia on the brink of the massacres? So there are broadly, I mean, as you might imagine, there's several strains of Islam in Indonesia, and there's broadly speaking, there's one simple sort of schematic that has often been used, and there is sort of the white uh, Muslims is one way they've been portrayed, which are more um, Gulf style, more um, orthodox Muslims. And then there is the red style, which oh, these are Muslims that are also deeply um, influenced by longstanding Indonesian traditions. And Sukarno was the latter. Sukarno was probably Javanese more than he was Muslim and Javanese in the religious sense. And and this is a, a deep and um, rich tradition. And the Communist Party was also from this wing of Islam. So you had the red. So what does what does Javanese mean in this context? Java Java would be the island that uh, Sukarno is from. Uh, it's the island. No, that, I mean, uh, I mean, what does no, no, Javanese I know, I know. mean? Yeah, yeah I was going to Yeah, yeah. So Sukarno is is uh, from Java, as are the majority of Indonesians. But there is a Javanese religious tradition that sits underneath. Um, the surface level Islam of many Javanese Muslims, and it is a, a sort of a, a rich syncretistic animistic set of beliefs that um, you will find when you scratch a lot of uh, the surface of a lot of Muslim beliefs in, in Indonesia. I mean, as is the case with every country and their religions, um, there is the more Arab aligned Muslim tradition, and there is the more locally rooted Muslim tradition. And so by the late by the end of Sukarno's rule, the the more syncretistic uh, Muslim tradition tended to be very much reunited behind the left, and the other smaller tradition, often on other islands, uh, Sumatra and in the northeast um, of Java, tended to be more conservative. But, but it, it, it's I think it's important to stress that it, it, it's not. It wasn't like it is now. So now you'll in, in Indonesia you have quite conservative um, Islam really taking over, but none of that really happened until after after this. Um, Muslim, Islam was seen as a fundamental part of an anti-imperial project by Sukarno and most Indonesians until until 1965, and the Communist Party um, uh, perhaps um, 
you know, some people have sort of ridiculed, ridiculed this and some people have seen this as quite uh, savvy recognition of material conditions. They, their official position was that Indonesia was a theistic, God-believing country and that the, to be a true communist, you had to recognize this material reality in order to work with the Indonesian masses. So apart for, apart for a tiny number of maybe the um, Central Committee of the Communist Party, even the Communist Party was mostly um, Muslim or Christian. So on the eve of the massacre, basically, uh, you have a Communist Party which is you know, very adapted to local conditions, also not trying to rock the boat too much. Uh, they're growing slowly uh, through elections and they're not, you know, and, and they're spreading uh, their networks through society, building popular power, but at the same time not looking at all to overthrow the government. Um, and on the other hand, you have the military, which is becoming, you know, has become increasingly uh, enmeshed with the US and has grown its own power base also economically by um, by having, you know, having its own industries, effectively being a state within a state, as, as you've already said. Uh, so if you could take us forward to what leads to violence to break out and not just some violence, but you know, just unspeakable levels of massacre and you know anybody who's watched the act of killing and I would urge you to do so if you haven't watched it um, would be familiar with this just the the levels of torture and uh, gangsterism and and so on without even getting to the extermination element uh, just really shocking so what what leads to that what's the spark so two things lead the United States to change its approach to Indonesia. Um, one is that Sukarno picks a fight with the United Kingdom over the creation of Malaysia. And the second is that John F. Kennedy is assassinated. So um, the creation of Malaysia um, by the United Kingdom was a sort of a, in the way that they did in, in much of the Middle East and Africa, they drew lines in a way that would privilege them and hurt allies of Sukarno. Sukarno knew this, Malaysia knew this, the United States knew this, and Sukarno picked a big fight with the United Kingdom over this. It was called confrontation, let's say. I don't need to say it in Indonesian. And John F. Kennedy didn't like this, but he was willing to still stick to the strategy of slowly trying to build an alliance in Indonesia rather than um, pushing for a radical break. Now, Johnson had much less time, quite literally and figuratively, for troublemakers in the third world. He didn't have the, the the leeway in the White House to fight these battles. He didn't care. He didn't understand why these people were fighting with the United Kingdom. And after John F. Kennedy died, they removed the ambassador who had been in place for a very long time, the one who had been in place since those that failed CIA operation in 1958, and they brought in a hard man. They brought in somebody who had overseen a coup in Korea, and everybody saw his arrival as a portent of a possible... Um, conflict and this was right and then and so and the and at this part of the story is still partially classified so we do know that the cia um stepped up its clandestine operations um with the goal of causing a conflict between the army and the communist party knowing that the communist party had no guns nor any ideology that it would allow it to to take up arms and as we approach 1965, this is the shift that is is occurring quite obviously to the people in my book that things are getting strange. People are hearing all kinds of stories about a, a possible right wing coup, stories that are not true are coming out and then being um, refuted. 
uh, and this is what it is like all through 1965. Uh, um, and so we get to the night of September 30th, 1965, when somebody or somebody uh, acts. And that action, I, I mean, it has something, there's obviously very specific things that happen in Indonesia, but there's something universal about it in that uh, the right-wing coup plotters, the violent anti-communists are always waiting for an opportunity. Uh, and even if they either they make it up or something happens, uh, someone else does something random and that leads them to, uh, to make their move, right? And so in, in Indonesia, you have this thing that happens which is still not well understood. So if you maybe tell right. us what we do know and maybe and also what we don't know. Right. So what we do know for sure is that for years and years, the privileged um, outcome uh, among U.S. policymakers, the thing that they wanted to happen, that they were actively trying to happen, was a conflict um, between the right and the left, which would allow the right to justify smashing the left to taking power. The, they believed that the right way that this could happen, the best way that could ha- this could happen, would be a failed, quote-unquote, communist coup uh, or an abortive, quote-unquote, communist coup. Um, and you have the distribution of these fake stories that the right is going to have their own coup. So on the night of September 30th, uh, 1965, you have a group of low-level army officers called the September 30th Movement that in the middle of the night go out and attempt to kidnap top generals in the armed forces. After this, they declare on the radio that they have stopped a right-wing coup and that um, uh, the country is under emergency measures to restore order. But the the message that they give to the the country is, we stopped a right-wing coup. Um, We uh, defended the revolution. We still do not know to this day who organized this this motion, uh, what their real goals were, or if they really had ever planned to kill the generals, because it turned out they had killed six of them. Um, Their bodies were found in a well. Within 12 hours of this first radio announcement, Suharto has taken control of the armed forces, taken control of the entire country, shut down all media except for army-controlled media, and spread a perfectly conceived One would have to imagine, one could not imagine a better conceived propaganda story about communist evil, uh, and he uses that as justification for the mass killings. So we don't know if he was involved in planning this uh, operation. We think, I think it's possible he might have known about it and let it happen. Another possibility is that these low-level army officers thought that they were starting a right-wing coup because these... um, rumors had been spread and they took action and then that was used to put into place uh, a plan that had existed for a long time. That is all in dispute and it's it's been in dispute for 50 years and until the CIA and the Indonesian military tell us what they don't tell us what we don't know, we're not going to know. But we do know that right away Suharto seizes power, puts out this almost perfect narrative about unique communist evil, which is that Communist women from the Indonesian Women's Organization had, in the middle of the night, performed a depraved, satanic, and sexual dance, which culminated in them cutting off the genitals of these heroic, patriotic generals, murdering them, uh, and then throwing them in in the ditch. And, And right away, this was used to justify the immediate 
uh, activation of this state within a state, which we've already mentioned, to around the country tell regular citizens that you need to help us crush the communists or you will be crushed, and also to begin arresting and mass the left in all of its forms. And what ensues then, obviously, is this horrific massacre of what ends up being something like a million people, uh, people put in concentration camps, tortured, and so on. Don't want to dwell too much on that. I think what would be interesting, because obviously we can't discuss everything that's in the book, and we can't discuss every case of uh, U.S.-backed coups and uh, Cold War anti-communist violence uh, perpetrated by local agents as well as the U.S. and so on, uh, what would be good is if we can talk a little bit briefly about Brazil, what happens in Brazil around the same period, uh, as as a way of uh, depicting what you call the Jakarta method and how Jakarta comes to be known and becomes a byword for uh, U.S.-led coups. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting that the Brazilian coup that happened in 1964, just one year before, the story that was told here to justify that coup was remarkably similar in some ways to the ones that, that was used in Indonesia. And this went back to Brazil's very deep anti-communist tradition back to the 1930s. There was this, this myth about a communist uprising, um, stabbing soldiers in the middle of the night while they were sleeping. Um, and this was ultimately crushed and used by Getulio Vargas to institute a dictatorship. So what you have in 1964 and 65 is um, two of the largest countries in the developing world going from a sort of neutral left position in the Cold War to deepen the right wing camp. Um, and over the next few years of the Brazilian dictatorship, the dictatorship radicalizes and starts to torture and kill its own population. And then it also engages in sort of sub-imperialism in South America. Um, it backs a coup in Bolivia. It stops the left from taking power in Uruguay. And then it is very deeply involved in preparing the ground for the coup in Chile in 1973. In the run-up to the latter, um, in 1972 and 1973, in both countries, you have the use of the word Jakarta to signify the mass murder of the left. So in, in Brazil, you have Operação Jakarta, which is... Um, a still unconfirmed officially name that the Brazilian military had for a mass murder program to wipe out the left here. And in 1972, in on the streets of Santiago, Chile, while Allende was still in power, you had a terror campaign, which consisted of graffiti and postcards being sent to left-wing uh, members of government with the words either Jakarta is coming uh, or Jakarta is getting closer, or just Jakarta. And the very clear message was, we're going to kill you like they killed them in Jakarta. And as we know, in 1973, that's that's precisely what they did um, in Santiago Stadium with the participation of the Brazilian military um, inside that stadium, which is often overlooked. Um, and Jakarta remained a... a um, a signifier for this in Latin America for quite some time being used in the context of Argentina and Central America. People would refer to the Jakarta plan uh, as a way to effectively get rid of the uh, left government or left movements in the country. And, and the, the sense on the global anti-communist right was that this worked. You could, you could get away with it. The United States wasn't going to stop you. They would usually help you. And then once, if you would take it out, everybody that could rise up against you, you could rule pretty um, safely. And I think that they were right 
Um, and I think to a very large extent, we live in the world created by that strategy, um, especially those of us that spend time in the developing world or live in Brazil or Southeast Asia. We live in a world where the regimes that took power in exactly those ways, the the infrastructure, the society that they created is still very much the one we live in today. I mean, the, the Brazil yeah. of 2020 is very much a 1964 Brazil, not the Brazil that Jango wanted to build before he was overthrown. Uh, and, and I think much of the world lives in this in the kind of violent crony capitalism that springs up from this very specific method. So I think it's quite striking in, in the book how you, you kind of tell the story from both sides almost from the kind of the, the point of view of, of the Americans and also the, the anti-communist forces all across the the world. And I think the the violence, it, which isn't the main topic of the book, um, it's just quite striking when you actually put it all together on, on a map as you do right at, at the end of the book. And it's, um, you know, potentially a million people in Indonesia um, dead and then 200,000 in, in Guatemala. And, you know, the, the figures are are astonishing um but i think what what really comes through is that basically this this it it, it works it's an incredible success for for america um and it's such a success that because no u.s soldiers um died i mean it 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 is a it it also has that element of of being a really effective intimidation technique even that word jakarta in, in a number of different languages comes to connote the, the the very real threat against um against communists and communist sympathizers so i think it's um yeah the the long-term impact of this of this kind of event and then it's 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 the essentially the what the americans and anti-communist forces learned from it really it's it's striking how this pay, plays a role in forming the world that we live in today now, and just to add it just add something onto georgia thing it's not just communists and communist sympathizers but any kind of dissent from active participation in the US-led half of the world. So, you know, any kind of vaguely left-leaning project, I mean, any kind of liberal even trying to undertake land reform already was uh, denounced as being uh, incipiently communist, right? So, and just so not just at the level of of governments or parties of formal politics, but anybody vaguely associated with that, whether it's just, you know, your random humble trade unionist or someone involved in a cultural organization, uh, as Vincent has already described in Indonesia, becomes, comes under the purview of, uh, of, of you know, and c- comes uh, in, into the, yeah, comes under the purview of, you know, potential victim of violent anti-communism. People, no. people can be communists with, without thinking that they're communists. Exactly. This yeah. is, yeah. Yeah, no, that is, uh, that's a quote from, uh, Dobby Song, who murdered Oscar Romero in, in El Salvador, and quite chillingly, I did an interview with uh, in in Congress two weeks ago, and one of Bolsonaro's main allies in Congress told me the same thing. He said, um, "Oh, this country is full of socialists, but they don't know it." Um, and and I think that is an important thing to that I try to make clear in the book is that anti-communism in the in its actually existing form in the 20th century was not only aimed at actual communists. It, it was the kind of ideology which justified the murder of anybody, um, or at least it, it, it justified lumping in huge parts of the left with communists because anybody that a communist might support was just as bad, and anybody that took one step left, inevitably you're going to fall into this abyss of the gulag, and this is very much what powers um, Bolsonaro today, and I think to a large extent it's, it's um, present in the United States and uh, all, all of Latin America.
So um, let's let's talk a little bit about some of the themes. I wanted to pick out a couple of things which are maybe a little bit marginal to the main story, but which are really interesting to discuss in in their own right. So, uh, and, and thinking about the way that anti-communism has a legacy, you know, for example, in contemporary Brazil, where I live and and where Vincent uh, has lived and is right now, uh, something emerged in the around 2014 uh vincent was actually living here and reporting at the time i i wasn't so um maybe vincent can even correct me on the specifics of it but uh something called the enchipechismo uh anti-workers party sentiment which was so, became so fanatical and hysterical and hallucinatory uh that it saw anything remotely associated with the left as uh corrupt and so I mean, obviously corruption became the weapon of the day for the right um it was also in in 1964 but Anti-communists have, have made use of various other um, techniques and approaches to target and tar uh, the left and anyone, uh, well, anyone to the left of whatever uh, they're proposing. Um, so one aspect of this, one, one very specific aspect is sexual anxiety and, and uh, fear of castration. So <laughs> this might seem a little bit odd, but it, this comes through in the book um, because, uh, Vincent, you highlighted how... On that 30th of September, um, high, uh, kidnapping and murder of those leading army generals in Indonesia would precipitated uh, the massacres. Uh, though the, that was, I mean, the real propaganda coup, which the right used then, was this idea that there were communists, specifically women, specifically feminists, who would come in yep. to your house at night and castrate you and you a strong man uh, a military officer could be killed in the night and if suppose and this plays on the minds presumably i mean the idea the, the the sort of propaganda effect would be that men around the country would fear that they too could be castrated by these uh loose devilish women uh, and it's amazing how much sexual anxiety comes through and in fact you know stanley kubrick uh, depicted this pretty well in in dr strangelove you know with the fears about communists inf- uh, infecting our precious bodily fluids and he, you know, that book, that, excuse me, that film came out uh, well before both Brazilian and uh, Indonesian coups. So it seems to be something that runs through uh, anti-communist fantasies. Well, I mean, uh, this is speculation, but I wouldn't be surprised if, like, Hollywood screenwriters were involved in that, the creation of that myth. Right. I mean, the, 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 the myth that Suharto pushed was so perfect and so well-crafted and ready so quickly in the first moments after the September 30th movement that um, a lot of the experts think that this was like a crack team of writers. I mean, it perfectly spoke to the kind of anxiety that all men feel probably throughout history, the sort of toxic masculinity or fragile masculinity that is, you know, inherent in the human body, right? Um, And it also spoke to this this very uh, easy to exploit uh, fear that, oh, you know, these women over here, because the the Indonesian women's movement was the largest feminist organization in the world at the time. Uh, And this they were organizing cross third world um, women's rights conferences and journals. And there was like Egyptian feminist poetry festivals put on in Indonesia and these kinds of things. And it's very easy to turn to men and say, look, these these women, if you let them go any further, you are going to lose your status as a man. Uh, and I mean, this is I mean, I didn't want to speak too much about this, but I mean, you wouldn't be surprised to hear that this book was quite psychologically difficult uh, to, to write because these a lot of the women that I met that are um, 70, 80 or whatever, they're still witches. Um, they're still considered wow. by everybody that knows them 
sexually depraved, demonic beasts um, to the point where it has been considered acceptable to kill the children of communists. Um, you can starve them out. You can shun them. And and I had to you know get to really know people that were really profoundly the losers of history. Um, and this is a thing that you don't really get to see when you grew up in, in the West like, like I did. Yeah. Um, these people really were kind of tossed tossed on the on the dustbin of history, uh, and they're still suffering from this this myth from the '60s. It's 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 powerful to this day. Um, and one of the women at the very end that I, I you know I check in on, I mean, she doesn't have any friends, and in, if you ask people in her neighborhood, I'm sure they'll say, oh, she's a communist, and and that is synonymous to this day with um, sexually depraved and demonic. It's, it's I mean, really, that was one of the most yeah. touching bits of the book. I mean, yeah. the way that these people have been just abandoned, not just by society, but also just by anybody who might have been intimate with them previously, I mean, in their, you know, intimate circle, uh, and in some cases, even abandoned by their nation. I mean, there's some uh, little vignettes that you paint of Indonesians who'd gone to Moscow and suddenly found themselves stateless. Um, right. Yeah. So just the sense of, of, of loss and the rug of existence pulled out from underneath people's feet uh, was so widely felt uh, by Indonesians, but not just Indonesians, uh, elsewhere as well. Yeah. And I, and I think, I mean, uh, and there's, you know, people that have studied the effectiveness of Brazilian politics in the anti-PT era have noticed that there is this a deep irrational thing that you can draw upon. There is a very effective way to get people to rally behind uh, sort of anti-politics or anti-this or that. And if you, um, if you tell people that the order is being upset in a way which is going to threaten you personally, uh, it's very easy to get people to to rally around, you know, Be- because otherwise, why would Dilma you? Or Bolsonaro? Yeah, why why would the the ordinary person on the street care about communists? You know, supposedly because they don't might not have seen any communists around, especially not in you know contemporary Brazil. Why would you care about this sort of you know as it would be today in Brazil a sort of pechista threat? What is what is it that really threatens their existence? And you know, it might be uh, mobilizing homophobia, right? Is it kind of you know, gays are threatening your family or threatening the existence of the family, um, or it might be corruption, like that the idea that um, you your living standards are under threat. So it must be because of this corrupt left government which has stolen all the resources and has broken the country. I mean, these are discourses which are very prevalent in, in contemporary Brazil for for listeners who aren't familiar. Yeah, I think that's sort of the saddest thing. For those of us that wrote for the liberal media from like 1995 to 2015 is we thought that the countries of the developed world had sort of put the dictatorships past them, that they had actually fully transitioned into democracy. And it became pretty clear over the last five years that no, the values that powered the dictatorship in Brazil or in much of Latin America or, uh, you know, the racism that powered a lot of the world, it was just right under the surface, you know, and it, it didn't take very much for half of Brazil to remember the things that they believed about communists under the dictatorship, to see Bolsonaro as sort of reasonable because he's just reproducing what was common sense for a very long time, and for everyone to realize, oh no, this is still the same violently enforced authoritarian, sorry, this is the same violently enforced hierarchical society that the 1964 coup happened in order to protect. I mean, that didn't that didn't change when the dictatorship fell apart. And there is it's still very easy to tell people, especially in the comfortable classes, if you don't stop this or that, uh, it's going to be overthrown again. And it's going to be, you know, those those people 
that you know where they are, you know where they live, they're going to come up into your neighborhoods and, and rape and kill you. And this, I mean, that myth was explicitly spread in, in Brazil that the, the communists were going to rape and, yeah. and kill you. Um, and it's just, it's not hard in a country as sort of foundationally unstable as Brazil is. It's a settler colony with indigenous population thrown over here, a, a white um, elite which refuses to recognize that it's... Uh, its position is racialized, a huge mass of brown and black people that are always struggling to stay alive. It's very easy to scare some of those people that chaos is going to come loose. And this has been at the heart of Latin American politics for centuries. And this is one of the reasons I argue that anti-communism was much stronger in Latin America than it was in uh, in Asia. I mean, in South America, the, the CIA found a ready audience, if not already a, a more anti-communist elite than themselves, whereas in Indonesia, they had to really, really fight to convince regular people that this was an evil thing. And that was the same case throughout Southeast Asia. Just to jump in here, I guess one of the one of the questions on on reading the book, which, you know, it's almost impossible to avoid as you're reading this, you know, the the, the context and the the very real impact that it has on people, this of the violence and the massacres is, you know, what 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 does this tell us about armed struggle, guerrilla warfare, authoritarianism? I mean, it not not to be kind of trite about it, but um, how sort of how cynical should we should we be about the the kind of the rules of the of the electoral game and what it means for kind of left wing movements? Because you do tell that there's a an inter, um, a, dis, a a line of um, Jiao lies, which is the militarized masses are in, invincible. I mean, is this is this a kind? Is this what, what you want to leave the reader with? It's time to arm the masses. We should all go out and get get guns, and uh, you know, j- just in case. I mean, I, I guess I'd want to put the question back to you. I mean, I I I didn't. Pick so we need guns, yeah. Sort of, yeah. I mean, the. I mean, what did you think reading? Because I didn't want to come to any particular conclusion. I've never been sort of aesthetically drawn to, let's say the the most uncompromisingly authoritarian parts of the left. But uh, I I don't know. Do you think that the events of this book point in that direction? Uh, I don't know if they do. Did you think so? Well, I mean, it's just you sort of see the the numbers and you see the 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 devastation, not just of the the organized um, left and the, the, the more moderates um, who get, you know, who, who get who get annihilated and get exterminated and it of course it's it's not that helpful to think count in kind of a counterfactual way if they'd all been armed it would have been would have been very different you could have had a civil war and then there could have been the same sort of outcome but i think it does it does make you realize that anti you know anti-communism isn't just an ideological position it is the last kind of readout of defense of, of property because that's was what was on you know that was what was on the line and that's what class struggle looks like if you know if, if, if you've got people willing to defend property they're going to use violent means to do so yeah and i think that i think i want to say that doesn't really answer the things. question so no sorry, but, I, I ducked it. no I, evasive, I answer, evasive I george <laughs> guns no. or not yeah i mean there's no answer but i also want to say two things i think that in the west in the english-speaking world especially we have a, a real uh under it's very underappreciated the extent to which reactionary violence is real and important i mean we only we don't 
you only have to take a little bit of privileges away from elites for them to fight back somehow or another. And this is a, I think a huge gap of our understanding of um, how politics works. Yeah. But on the question of um, the armed or unarmed left in the 20th century, and this is a very depressing point that a lot of the people that I interviewed in the book made to me, most of them that were on the democratic socialist left in Chile or Latin America or Brazil or Indonesia or around the world is that if you look at this area of peak U.S. hegemony and the Cold War, so from 1950 to 2000, the only left-wing movements that survived survived by becoming authoritarian, uh, strictly disciplined, perhaps dictatorial, and militant. All the ones that believed most deeply and um, maybe naively in the quote-unquote uh, rules-based international liberal order uh, were all killed. So in, in Chile, you had this debate going back and forth between the MIR and the Communist Party. The Chilean Communist Party did not want uh, armed revolution. They wanted to stay, take things slowly. Uh, the, um, they wanted to do things within the bounds of democratic politics, and the MIR inspired by Fidel was like, no, that's never going to work. The, uh, the bourgeoisie is going to kill it. The bourgeoisie will kill you with the United States' backing, and look what happened in Indonesia. And this was an explicit thing that um, a lot of leftist movements and right-wing movements um, drew lessons from in the late 60s and early 70s. I mean, we forgot about it totally now, but this was a huge deal for the left. And in Chile, they said... So would you... Are you... As a conclusion, then maybe that you don't say in the book, but perhaps may I, I mean to put it to you now, whether you're willing to draw it out, whether the the kind of uh, the exterminatory violence of the Indonesian right also infects the left. It makes the left more um, authoritarian, more um, inclined to military force, the use of military force, and more inclined towards um, violence. Would that be the conclusion, kind of just as a historical conclusion? Yeah, as a historical affirmation, that's just factually true. So Pol Pot um, drew lessons from 1965. Um, he decided, based on what he saw in Indonesia, that he would never be uh, sort of allow any kind of possibility um, to that he would not be the most armed man in the room. Um, who know? I mean, he was never the leader of a good or reasonable movement in the first place. But if you listen to him talk about why he took this turn in the late 60s, he said that it was because in 1965, the leader of the Philippine Communist Party, who I interviewed for this book, told me the same thing. He said that the reason that he chose the armed struggle in the Philippines, and this guerrilla movement is still, by the way, um, controlling parts of the country. I, I went out there and did a story on it for the Washington Post. He told me that he learned based on Indonesia that he could not survive within uh, nonviolent democratic conditions. Uh, and the Cultural Revolution launched in China just after uh, the Indonesian violence used the Indonesian massacre as a huge part of its thematics. I mean, this was something that was talked about all the time in the Cultural Revolution, not only because the Suharto government was um, turning against China and its supporters were attacking the Chinese embassy, but because Mao himself had told the Indonesian communists right before 1965, uh, you can't trust the right. I think they're going to act. Um, the uh, Chinese uh, foreign minister at the time, uh, Xu Enlai, I'm hoping, uh, 
was trying to convince Sukarno that he had to create a people's militia to counterbalance um, the rest of the uh, to counterbalance the armed forces in the country. So, in a very dark sense, it not only proved Mao right on this very cynical and uh, violent position that he had taken, but then allowed him to push the Cultural Revolution, or we don't know, there's no historical evidence either way, convinced him that the Cultural Revolution was necessary. Because if you look at what the Cultural Revolution was, the whole narrative was about a left-wing movement being infiltrated by hidden bourgeois elements that you had to get rid of. And the 1965 massacre in Indonesia, you couldn't couldn't make up a more perfect justification for what Mao did um, in, in... in the cultural revolution. So, yeah. I mean, a, a quick, yeah, I mean, to answer your question, I think, yeah, I mean, you can, as a historical question, you can see left-wing movements around the world get more authoritarian and more defensively violent right after 1965. And if you listen to them, they say it's because they don't want to be killed like the Indonesians were killed. And it's, I mean, it's, um, I think it's part of the strength of everything that you've been putting to us that um, to restore to restore the place of the of the massacres in Indonesia um, to their kind of world historic role, um, and tracing tracing uh, threading through all the kind of consequences and all these different contexts, and the different kind of inflections that it takes in different countries, is um, really important, in fact, and historically vital. The thing, the next thing I wanted to kind of um, just to pick you up on is um, how. I suppose how, um, and again, I guess it goes to the question of the um, world historic place of um, Saharto's of Saharto's massacres. Is how far what happens in Indonesia is the defeat of a universalist model of third world of third world nationalism or third world um, third world universalism. And the substitution of um, Suharto's model of nationalism for Sukarno's signals a transformation in third world politics in general, away from the more emancipatory universalist ideas of anti-imperialism, anti-colonialism, to a more um, particularist and culturally or um, yeah, culturally inflected nationalism, I suppose, which disintegrates um, the idea of, um, of anti-imperialism as a universal ideology. Yes, absolutely. I mean, the nationalism, I mean, nationalism has a bad name for a good reason. But when we talk about the nationalism that Sukarno and Nehru and India and um, Nkrumah and, and Ghana and all this, the third world movement used, it was more about building a nation out of democratic anti-imperialist values, because there was nothing really to bring Indonesia together, or nothing really to bring Malaysia together. And um, you can even see in parts of Southeast Asia that the countries weren't brought together. There's no language, there's no real national ideology. Um, and then, of course, with the deletion of the left in the mid-60s, all of this changes. I mean, Suharto still, in a very hollow sense, insists on nationalism, and you get the rise of um, leaders, and I think this is something we're all pretty familiar with now, that sort of use a sort of twisted and empty anti-imperialism to justify whatever they want to do, um, if it involves some other foreign power. Um, and, and this is, you know, it, it's not sophisticated what happened. They very physically deleted the left from these countries. And I think I mentioned in the book that, you know, the Indonesian Communist Party was the largest um, in the third world, uh, um, of course, because it was the largest outside of China and Soviet Union. But 
the second and third largest, Sudan and Ghana, were also the the victims of mass murder. I mean, Iraq was a U.S.-backed uh, coup in and then the CIA, just as they did in the Iran, um, just as they did in Indonesia, gave lists to the Ba'ath Party, uh, including Saddam Hussein, to execute the Indonesia Communist Party. And weirdly enough, one of my friends in London, her father is was arrested in that in that year. And you get an entire um, yeah, you get a, a real twisting of what nationalism meant in the third world, and you get a real the the third the third world movement, the third world dream is entirely ripped apart. And as we know, the third world went from being something that was considered emancipatory and inspiring and world historically um, powerful to like a cheap dig at all the countries that aren't white. So I want to move forward to another of the kind of consequences of violent anti-communism. So we've done the sort of the effects on the left and the dilemmas that it put to the left. Uh, in terms of whether you should become armed and also the sort of more defensive authoritarianism and paranoia, which developed in, in left-wing parties and movements. Uh, we've also dealt with the effects on third world nationalism and how violent anti-communism in getting rid of a lot of left nationalists uh, drove a lot of developing countries to have recourse to more cultural forms of identification. Um, and, you know, you could see, you could compare, for example, uh, Nehru's India to uh, Modi's contemporary India as maybe one of the most stark examples. Uh, and the, the third effect, which I think would be worth discussing, because you hint at it towards the end of the book, uh, Vincent, is a question of development. So it, it also, all, these effects in, in putting in place authoritarian crony capitalism, it also put countries on a specific path of development, or I might argue kind of non-development as it happened. Uh, and, and you do ask a question, uh, which is maybe, you know, did the third world miss the boat in terms of being able to catch up to the West? Notably, the only countries which have managed to catch up to the West, as well as, you know, as well as Japan, which caught up earlier, were Taiwan and South Korea and Singapore, which all had very specific conditions in terms of being very tightly, uh, closely tied to the US and were allowed uh, to you know, do catch-up development, and more recently, China, which <laughs> maybe you could argue was the real winner of the Cold War. But other right. than that, no one else has managed to catch up. I think uh, the, the economist Hajun Chang, the South Korean economist, points out that South Korea and Ghana had the same standard of living, the same level of income in 1950. And of course, look at the gulf between them now. Uh, so did I, I guess one of the, the takeaways is also violent anti-communism put the kibosh on the possibility of real third world development and catch-up. Right, and I think the question is, um, and it's not it's 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 not just radical leftists that are asking this question, but mainstream historians and economists increasingly ask this question: Is de did decolonization really happen? So, in 1940, it certainly started. In 1945, it certainly certainly started to happen formally. You got countries actually ruling themselves for the first time, but it turned out that in the early 50s and into the 60s, when that sovereignty was insisted upon in a sort of robust economic sense, you had the same kind of pushback from the imperial core that you might have had under, under the period of formal uh, colonization. So uh, I think, uh, and I don't want to take this position myself because I don't know, but I think in 200 years you might look back and say, oh yeah, well, the era of the European domination of the rest of the world did not end in 1945, but it shifted tactics 
um, a bit. And mm. one of the main tactics that it, that was used to maintain the economic relationship between the first and third world, which is broadly speaking, this holds to this day of the third world uh, exporting raw materials and capital accumulating in the first world. Um, that was maintained through a series of interventions led by the United States, often using uh, its sincere anti-communism as a justification. Um, that's not, you know, and that's like, it, it, that is quite a depressing way to look at it, and it flies in the face of sort of the way that we have to pretend the world is as we do liberal journalism day to day. You know, and in my career, I know this, so, you know, there's real cognitive dissonance sort of wading in these historical realities and the counterfactuals and then having to sort of treat day-to-day life um, the way that mainstream corporate journalism demands that you do. But um, yeah, as if, the just, as, if, uh, of, as if the backwardness of many countries around the world is, you know, it's their backwardness fault. is problematic, but yeah, it's policy choices, you know, fault. and maybe they're, they should. They're lazy. Do, and, exactly. Uh, yeah. Well, this is a really they, interesting thing about Brazil is like, there's, you know, when I was reporting on Dilma's government, most of my time was spent recording on the very real mistakes that she was making and the problems with that government. But like, name me a social democratic movement in the third world that's ever succeeded, you know, like, and so is it, is it the case that they all just make mistakes at a much higher rate than uh, everybody else? Or is it that the, the game is set up that you have to be perfect to move forward and nobody's perfect. Or you have to be very, so very big. Actually, and, you know, and China's the only other case, which, you know, it's the only exception. And obviously well, China is a very China. much, well, you know, and, and I think a very important point, if you want to use my, you know, use the events of my book as the lens through which you view world history. And I don't think you should always do that. But if you are doing so, China very, very much so did not have an anti-communist regime uh, in, put in place at the at the barrel of a gun, right? I mean, and they very much, whether or not you consider the current um, Chinese regime, capitalist, communist state, whatever it is, it clearly was not what everybody else got, right? It was not this, uh, it wasn't what Brazil got, it wasn't what Indonesia got, it wasn't what everybody else that was pulled into the Western camp got. Somehow or another, they did do their own thing. And who knows if it was because of their size or it was because they somehow or whenever had this uh, bit of autonomy to organize their own project. So actually, this I think um, you, you mentioned cognitive dissonance um, just a bit earlier, and I mean the role of America in in all of this. You kind of you you start on this note in the book about how you know maybe this particular the the CIA in particular the um, role in these in these massacres in these atrocities in this kind of deliberate um, and very concerted anti-communist struggle. This isn't and and anti anti colonial struggle. Um, this isn't the idea of America that's that's transmitted in in American schools or or maybe in in other schools as well. Do do you think that this um, narrative has something to say about or has an impact on the idea of America? I mean, every book which has America in is about the idea of America to a certain extent. But right. yeah, did you did you? Um, come away feeling national shame or or some other emotion towards towards America? Uh, I've, I've, I've sort of emerged from this, but it was, it was much worse. I felt sort of like um, like my, the core of my identity had, you know, I mean, I felt sort of like I was like disassociating. I felt like um, and I mean, again, I wasn't like a naive, 
you know, I knew about third world interventions. I knew about bad things the United States had done, but the extent to which I really dove into the worst aspects of this and the extent to which I realized we were not complicit, but really driving what was going on here and for what, and for what, right? So we could, you know, drive around suburbs and go to the subway sandwich shop and like drive back in line, you know, like what, what is it for? Um, it was profoundly difficult, um, actually, to to go through as an American um, and to sort of interact with the with the world as it exists now, um, as if it's normal. Um, uh, there was, it, and and I think part of this this comes to the surface when you're in Asia, because you know when you're in Europe or America or even. South America, being white, like no one notices you, but when you're in Asia, people immediately realize that you're white and they realize that you're way, way, way richer than them, which is a world historical fact, right? I mean, um, if an alien were to land on Bali and walk around, he would come to the conclusion correctly that our planet is organized according to a racial hierarchy and all the white people have all the power. Um, And you feel this when you're in Asia, uh, especially in Indonesia. And um, that sort of probably doubled the psychological difficulty of going through all this. And, you know, sitting in front of these people who had, you know, all of their friends murdered by the power that ultimately won the 20th century and having to sit across from them as an American and and and, and listen to it. No, it was, it was profoundly difficult. And um, I think probably someday we're going to be able to look back on um, the period of American peak hegemony uh, with a little bit more objectivity, but I think we're too deep in it now to really, to, to I mean, I've, I even find this, now that I've stopped working on the book, I've just gone back to kind of, you know, I love Big Brother, you know, like, uh, whatever, who cares? You know, like, it's, 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 it's hard to keep that worldview, even though that I know it's based on facts in my brain, it's just so easy just to go back and be like, yeah, you know, but America's good. You know, we all know... Yeah sort of a priori that America's good. You know, we, and it doesn't matter how many facts you have about the fact that it is a, I mean, it, an explicitly militaristic settler colony from the from day one. Mm, I guess it, it, it's just that contradiction between the anti-colonial like origins of America and then what in the 20th century America <laughs> did to uh, destroy anti-colonial struggles. But yeah, I think, Alex, you had a question about the meaning of all this today. So obviously where I'm sat, uh, it often feels like the Cold War isn't over. Um, despite it despite it being definitively over, I mean, you might even argue, as this podcast does, that the period that uh, came after the Cold War itself has ended. Uh, and yet, despite that, it seems that Latin America, especially Latin American elites, really didn't get the memo uh, that anti-communism still carries on. So I, I guess what are the lessons, I think, and I guess maybe to make it a little bit more general, uh, what do you do after a dictatorship falls? Because I think one of the lessons as well is that those places which didn't have truth and reconciliation commissions, didn't put people in jail, didn't root out the institutions that were responsible for keeping anti-communism alive, uh, end up uh, getting it thrown back in their faces later on. And, you know, Brazil is a very clear case of that. Um, 
So, I mean, is that a lesson that you would that you would take from it? Is that a lesson that your book kind of tells? Well, I uh, I think I want to answer that question. The question is, uh, can any of the three of you think of any states that were formed in neoliberal world historical time that like worked out? Like from 1980 to now, has any new government kind of taken form where the system in you place mean, was fully you democratic? Mean you, state, you state to a new government. Yeah, new states. I mean, either either the fall of the dictatorships in Latin America, did they any of them like really truly transition to democracy? I mean, what I think of is Eastern Europe, South America, the fall of the dictatorship, the Cold War dictatorships, they all kind of transitioned to either the same kind of crony capitalism or maybe in the case of the post-communist world, a worse kind uh, of crony capitalism. Um, and I just don't know... And I mean, this is a, this is a point that uh, a liberal um, historian and international relations expert made to me recently. His name is Matias Spector. He's, he's uh, active down here in Brazil. A lot of the dictatorships that ended didn't end in, in a concrete way, right? They, the kind of liberal, the kind of liberal um, ideology which was hegemonic in the 80s and 90s said that all you had to really do was tinkerer at the top and change the rules of the selection of the leaders and you didn't and then you got it but as we, i think we're realizing in latin america and certainly in the former communist world we didn't really get robust democracy we didn't get we didn't really reject the 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 the, the things that 1964 in brazil and 1973 in chile actually happened in order to put in place um so that's my sort of pessimistic take uh uh, that's not a lesson, is it? That's just a uh, no. But it's no. Uh, but you're. But it's right. Like I, we 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 were discussing this on a recent episode about what happened to Eastern Europe and how a lot of, in fact, many post-communist uh, countries kind of given up on even the emaciated liberal democracy that the U.S. was proposing, um, right. which we see, which we see, you know, all over the place now. Uh, and I mean, the one conclusion, and I think. I think often when you're thinking about world history through a very European lens, you think, well, you know, there was at least a kind of sort of a golden age, relatively speaking, um, which ran from the post, you know, the post-World War period, the Trente Glorieuses or whatever, that, uh, you know, and, and that was really held in place because of the threat of communism. The threat of communism made uh, actual, you know, democratic politics, at least kind of capitalist democratic politics, function reasonably well. Um, right. And that's now gone, and the consequences, yeah. and that's maybe one of the reasons why you don't really have uh, part, any particularly successful democracy anywhere. That's certainly in terms of a regime that's been founded from the 1980s onwards. Yeah, I think it's. I think that's an important point, and I think that um, you don't have to be a radical leftist to see the value of having a left in existence. Um, and I think even Fukuyama in, now in, does. You know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, in not you know. In the best part of European history, you know, you, the Communist Party in Italy and France, they didn't like run the whole thing. But the fact that they were there to correct any mistakes or to act as a counterweight to anything that the right did probably made things better. And then if you look at the third world, the complete deletion of the left in, in the events that I described in this book ended up with what you have in South America. Right. I mean, I think that. Uh, and then, you know, and this is also that main history, mainstream historians make the same point that the possibility, even distant, that the Soviet Union could act as a um, competing vision made Western Europe, Western European social democracy more robust. 
again, I mean, that's not, that's not, I don't know what lessons that tells us for, gives us for the future, but I agree with your historical point. Absolutely. It's um, it's perhaps a little bit of a, of a grim place to finish. Um, I guess the only thing we've decided is that we definitely need to take up arms, um, right? That's, that's, <laughs> that's what you... <laughs> um, but anyway, well, I think we'll, I think we'll leave it. We'll leave it here. Um, we can put some links to some gun stores in the, sh- in the show notes. <laughs> In Brazil, you're yeah. going to want to get them illegally. Uh, in the U.S., it should be quite easy. In Brazil, <laughs> you're going to want to like go to. If you're in Sao Paulo, you're going to want to go to the PCC and see if they can help Oof, you out. Yeah, that's uh, a. <laughs> yeah, yeah, get that's a, 3D a big printer shot. and print no, 3D yeah, print yourself a rifle. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, all, all these sorts of thoughts uh, have been provoked by your book. So I think it, you can conclude it's an excellent book. Uh, I, that's definitely my conclusion. Uh, for listeners, once again, it's The Jakarta Method, Washington's Anti-Communist Crusade and the Mass Murder Program that Shaped Our World. I uh, would strongly urge you to pick up a copy when it comes out in May. And uh, thanks again for to Vincent for, for joining us. This has been fun and uh, quite thought-provoking. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Thanks for, for reading it carefully. It's really gratifying to to hear that it actually like exists in, in someone else's mind other than mine after years of just like uh, years in the dirt of the most horrible things that have ever happened. So hopefully, hopefully yeah. if it can sort of force some rethinking of something in a factually based way, then it'll be somehow worthwhile. Absolutely. Absolutely. Very much does that. Cheers, Vincent. Thank you. I mean, actually, that's another thing we didn't even get onto. But I mean, you know, how how much this has um, furthered conspiracy theorizing, because uh, that's a whole other that's a whole other thing. Which um, you know, you well, hear this, these stories and you're like, um, I mean, I hate you know, I I mean, I I'm sure we both know people in in Brazil even who are quite big on the um, you know conspiratorial yeah. angle, both you know, especially to the 2016 coup here and whatnot, and it's like. Yeah, I mean, you kind of want to. I, I, I'm instinctively resistant to those sorts of explanations. But then, when you go back through the history and are reminded about these things, you're like, "But they're such fucking cunts." I mean, it might be, you know, they, maybe it is. Maybe it is all a big oh, conspiracy. Man. It's infuriating because, on the one hand, I have like a way higher tolerance for like whatever the extreme left or the tanky left or whatever. Whenever they accuse there of being a conspiracy, because I'm like. Based on my sort of in, pretty intimate knowledge of what happened in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, and 70s, I'm like, yeah, maybe that's like not weirder than what we've really done. Yeah. And the people that were the people that were correctly guessing what happened in the 50s and 60s and 70s didn't like they sounded weirder than you sound. Yeah. But on the other hand, I I know that like when all these things came out in 75 with the Church Committee. That sort of led everyone in the United States to go mad because everyone started thinking, well, if every if all of these things could be happening, if the CIA is literally kidnapping poor black men in downtown uh, um, alleyways and taking them up into hotel rooms and, and giving them LSD to try to control their brains, like anything could happen. And so, yeah. like, in the one sense, the conspiracy theories are credible. And on the other hand, they're ridiculous and the fault of the CIA itself. And I think like you can't have, I mean, I hope, I mean, it's probably like, you know, I don't have to include this, but like one thing maybe I hope it does sort of force is a rethinking of like, is this the best possible hegemon we could get really, right? I mean, because the narrative in, in, the, in mainstream liberal discourse, and this is the Fukuyama's, you know, his, the received wisdom about what he wrote anyways, is that, well, 
you know, this is as good as it gets. It's like, well, is a, a hegemon that is constantly engaged in the kind of clandestine activities that make you go crazy if you find out about them, is that the best of all possible worlds? Is there, is it worth thinking about whether we, humanity can improve upon that? Um, and I think that might come to the fore with coronavirus. I mean, like, yeah. China and U.S. are really going head to head and China's like accusing the U.S. of maybe like bringing it over there. And even that, I'm like, well, did they? I don't know. You know, like uh, I'll find out in 25 years or in 75, depending on how the CIA classifies it. So I, I guess I guess history will vindicate all the Russiagate people as well. <laughs> they're all right yeah all that shit they believed furiously for 18 months and then never talked about it again <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> it's gonna turn out in 25 years that uh yeah it was definitely food I was actually just drafting a thing about which touches on kind of Russiagate and the whole hysteria that's occupied liberal establishments for the past you know, four or five years. Um, and it seems to have gone away suddenly. And it's like, oh, well, I, I'm, I don't know if I can still write that article or if it's going to be, nah, it's going to be something entirely. No, of course. I mean, well, this is, I mean, again, this is the, we talked a bit about the the power of the Cold War in, in Brazil, but like, what did the US liberal media do when like this guy that was like ontologically incapable of being the president became the president? <laughs> yeah. Like they they went straight to fucking evil Russian. They went straight to Rocky, whatever Rocky that was. It was like, they're like, our like lizard brain just kicked in the most like um, instinctive, big, bad enemy we could supply. And that's what we went with like, to, like the New York, I mean, like I went to, I know a lot of Russians in Moscow. I was going to become a Russian correspondent. I went there in early 2017 and these guys were like really depressed, the, the real Moscow correspondents, because they were like, this is my life's work. I, I worked my whole life to be able to be in a position to say what's really going on. But these people back in Washington are like demanding that I follow this entirely bullshit narrative. Um, yeah. yeah, it was like the top of liberal media just to just blame I mean, the Russians because Rachel you know, Maddow be, yeah. against, against somebody's like connections in, in Moscow and their understanding of Russian politics. And it was uh, it's a good point, man. It's yeah. a really good point about the uh, the hangover of the Cold War. Um, I mean, it, and even to a lesser extent here, I mean, we had some of the Russiagate stuff here as well with links to Brexit. Um, and it's true, there is a kind of, um, there is a, the kind of automatic reaching for the, the automatic reaching for the old Cold War enemy is really striking. I mean, it's such a, cli- yeah. it is a cliche, but the first is tragedy, then as far as really applies here. I mean, it, you know, <laughs> the anti- Cold War anti-communism was a fucking tragedy. And now you just have this completely farcical reenactment of it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, like, and again, you know, we're supposed to be rational, but like, they couldn't just look right in front of them and think, well, maybe Trump was elected because the 300 year history of racism as the dominant political force in the United States might have just come back after 10 years of being dormant. No, no, no. It has to be a third rate power uh, across the world that reminds me of my nightmares growing up, you know? Uh, yeah. Yeah, because well, the U.S. has to be an, an innocent power and actually still likes to think of itself in some ways as a bit of an underdog, I think. Uh, that's still ingrained. So it needs to be, it has to take some yeah third-rate power and build them up to be the big baddie because otherwise the, the, the conception of the U.S. is incredibly powerful and much more so than any other power. Uh, I think that that is a reality they can't quite cope with. Um, 
And I think, I mean, this is my suspicion. I'm kind of saying this off the top of my head. But, you know, the reason that the Russiagate stuff hasn't affected the, the real hardcore neocons and, and certainly didn't affect the kind of the Trumpites that much is just because I think they have a, a, just a greater degree of cynicism about power and about the world. Whereas, you know, the Democrats, I think, most bought into the Russiagate stuff precisely because they buy into the ideological bullshit to a much greater degree. Well, I mean, the Democratic Party is, is basically hit Paul for good white people, right? So, like, there's not, it's not, you're not trying to get no, them to change perfect. society. It's not trying, you're not trying to get them to change society in any way that uh, I, like, you know, you're not trying to use them to restructure daily life in any real way. What you want to do is to feel like you're a good person because you voted for the good party. And the actual voters of the Democratic Party tend to be now like the real, um, you know, high, high uh, intensity MSNBC voters are like middle class white people that need to feel that they're good. And yeah. if you're American and you click that button every four years, you feel good. I mean, this is the I mean, I'm from L.A. Like I, you know, the, I, it's people that like do one like juice cleanse a year and like try not to eat that much meat think think that they're really sort of the revolutionary subject of history like we're the underdog i mean that's built into our i mean every american believes that they're the underdog you can't get around that and as long as you do this and you do that and you press this button uh you're definitely a good person and, and that was what trump really violated in a very um visceral way is that he's like a dick and he's like clearly doesn't do the things that are supposed to make you a good liberal subject and uh that's why getting rid of him trumps everything else um, material that the Democratic Party might have to offer, even though they stopped offering anything like in the yeah. 70s. No, absolutely. Um, right. I think uh, these guys have to go. Yeah, I think so it's past, so it's past uh, George and Phil's bedtime. Um, yeah, I got to go too. <laughs> this is uh, the thing. Uh, I, what, what, what do we all have to go and do? Yeah, I've, I've got to go and watch Netflix and stay indoors. Yeah, you got to go for yeah, you got to switch the technology interacting with to like yeah. a, a, like a lower lower intensity technology. Yeah, lower <laughs> intensity technology, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> thank you, exactly that. Because this is like always what Alex doesn't understand. This time of night, lower intensity technology is needed. 